Pittsburgh Steeler fans. This is Brian Anthony Davis from Steel Curtain Network and Fans First Sports Network. Usually at this time, you hear the great show that we have every single Wednesday dropping at noon, the Steel City Insider with Jim Wexel and Jeremy Ritz. Jim and Jeremy are off this week. Instead, we have our very own KT Smith, who has been doing his own show on Fans First Network, the NFL feed, called The Call Sheet. Check out this show or anything else that you need from any other team, whether it be football, baseball, basketball, whether it be the NHL, soccer, or anything else. You can find it on Fans First Sports Network. Thank you for all of your support and enjoy the show. Fans for our Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet, episode seven to be exact. This is Kevin Smith, host of the show and also the co-host of the Here We Go podcast with the great Brian Anthony Davis over at the Steel Curtain Network. And I'm also fortunate to be the head coach of the Ocean City Red Raiders, a high school football program in southern New Jersey. And as always, really happy to be with everyone and to talk about the great game of football with you all on this show, one of the flagship programs on the NFL platform at Fans First Sports Network. So the topic of today's show is the nature of trades in the NFL. Many of you may have noticed that trade frequencies in the league have really picked up. You know, that's not something that ha- happened much in the past. The NFL is a league that for a very long time placed a high value on developing its own players and refusing to part with them through trades. And we'll get into the reasons for that in a minute, but they've loosened their stance in that regard and it's led to some unprecedented movement, particularly when it comes to some of the league's marquee players. And for me, that's exciting. I I love trades. I I can remember way back to when I was in grade school. My favorite basketball player at the time was a center for the Houston Rockets named Moses Malone. I don't even know why I became a Moses Malone fan because he played for Houston. I lived in New Jersey. Television coverage back then of the NBA was sparse, to say the least. Uh, There were no ESPN games. You might get a game of the week on the weekends and some local TV coverage. I, as a basketball player, was a guard. Moses Malone was a, a rebounding machine at center. But for whatever reason, Moses became my favorite player. And anytime that the Rockets were on TV, it was like a holiday for me. I was so excited to watch them. I, maybe I could see three or four Rockets games a year. And I'll never forget the 1981 playoffs when the Rockets upset the defending champion L.A. Lakers, led by... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson and Moses Malone played out of his mind. And my dad let me stay up late. Those were West Coast games and they came on really late. My dad let me stay up late and watch them. And it was like the greatest thing that had happened to me in my young life at that point. In 1983, when Moses Malone was traded to the Philadelphia 76ers, which was the, the local NBA team for me in New Jersey and whose games were regularly televised in my area, it was it was like Santa had delivered the greatest Christmas gift of all time. And then Moses Malone went on to lead the 76ers to the NBA title in 1983. And me and some of my friends went to the parade with one of the local dads who 
incidentally, lost us for about a good 90 minutes or so on Broad Street in Philadelphia when we were about 12 years old and wandering around by ourselves while he was off doing who knows what. Uh, <laughs> and that's a great memory in and of itself. But for the rest of my life, I've just been sort of tantalized by the idea of trades because the Moses Malone trade brought something really cool to my life. And football was always my favorite sport. Basketball wasn't even my favorite sport. So as a football fan, you know, my goal back then was to become a professional football player. But because of the Moses Malone trade, the fallback plan, the plan B option was to become a general manager. Let's call that the George Costanza plan. Like when Costanza decides, oh, maybe he could be the general manager of the Yankees. Well, I had that in my mind as well. And it was all inspired by the Moses Malone trade. But the thing is, the NFL generally didn't make those kind of trades. Back then, you'd get an occasional blockbuster, like in 1989 when the, when the Vikings sent eight draft picks to Dallas for Herschel Walker. Or a few years later, when the 49ers traded Joe Montana to the Chiefs, those were really anomalies. They didn't happen very often. The Walker deal is really an outlier because it it involved a player in his prime. Most of the big trades were the product of some kind of extenuating circumstances involving either unproven players or players at the end of their careers. Brett Favre, for example, who was famously traded from Atlanta to Green Bay, but that was after one year when nobody knew that he was going to become Brett Favre. And John Elway was dealt to the Broncos by the Colts back in 1983, but that was only because he had been drafted by Baltimore and simply refused to play for them. Even the Montana deal was circumstantial. He was nearing the end of his career. San Francisco had another future Hall of Famer, Steve Young, teed up and ready to take the reins. And so they could part with Montana. So, you know, rarely were players dealt to other teams in the prime of their careers. And those deals never, never involved player for player trades like we saw in other sports. As evidence, between 1995 and 2015, the number of NFL players who were traded each season averaged between 30 and 40 per year. I mean, there were some variations. In 1997, for example, that number dropped all the way down to just 22 players traded for the entire season. And conversely, in 2006, when the NFLPA and the owners agreed to a new collective bargaining agreement, the number of traded players rose to 60. It, it got even bigger in 2010, the lockout year, when 70 players were moved. But in normal years, when labor relations were stable, trades were an oddity. But then that started to change around 2015. And since then, the number of traded players has increased on average to around 50 to 60, almost doubling. And big trades, too, involving some of the league's best players. They have become fairly common. Just think back to last year, 2022. That's perhaps one of the best examples of marquee names moving. Players like Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Tyreek Hill, Khalil Mack, A.J. Brown, Amari Cooper, all of those guys were dealt. And then this offseason, which hasn't been quite as busy, but still names are significant. Aaron Rodgers being the biggest name, but also Jalen Ramsey and Darren Waller, DJ Moore, even Sean Payton, a coach, was dealt by New Orleans to Denver for first and second round draft picks. These types of trades are now common. And again, they're exciting. It's fun when you hear that a big trade has been announced. It gives people like me lots to talk about. 
a few year, a few weeks ago when the Rogers deal went down, I had a great conversation with Dan Burnham from FFSN's This Is The Jet Life podcast about the trade. And these trades are entertainment for the fans as much as their business for the teams. So let's talk real quick about why the increase. Why have trades become much more common in the NFL? What's turned the league from being so conservative with its player movement into you know, kind of a football version of let's make a deal? Really, there have been four factors. Factor number one, there's a lot of new blood in the NFL in terms of front offices these days. The, the younger executives in the league grew up watching players move around the NBA and Major League Baseball. They understand how valuable a trade can be and also how short the careers of NFL players are. They're not afraid to move them if they think they can make their team better. Now, I'm a Steelers fan, and I'm used to the Kevin Colbert way of doing things. Kevin Colbert was Pittsburgh's GM or director of player operations for from 2000 to 2022, and he took a pretty buttoned-up approach to things. The Steelers built through the draft. They were not particularly active in free agency. They rarely engaged in trades. When Colbert pulled the trigger on the Minka Fitzpatrick trade in 2020, it was, it was quite frankly shocking. But his successor, Omar Khan, who took over just last year, has been way more aggressive by comparison. Khan was only on the job for a couple of weeks when he moved Chase Claypool to the Bears for a trade that ended up being the first pick in the second round with which the Steelers selected Joey Porter Jr. That's a trade Steelers fans are thrilled about. And then he was active during the trade. Khan went up and down the draft board targeting players the Steelers desired. You know, he's just one in a line of younger GMs who see trades differently from their older and more conservative predecessors. Now, you have a second reason is that teams have gotten much more creative with their understanding and use of the salary cap. This has allowed them to, uh, you know, take more freedom when it comes to contracts unloading unwieldy ones or finding ways to spread out the cap hit on, on larger ones, putting contract money into base salary, roster bonus bonuses and incentives has been a really popular tool with younger GMs. And it's replaced the old signing bonus that was once so common. The problem with signing bonuses was that they're usually prorated over the length of the deal, which means they extend the cap hit on a player. So if that player gets traded, the team that acquires him must pick it up, and it makes some players, frankly, untradeable. But that trend is largely going by the wayside. And GMs are now figuring out that if you do incentive-laden deals or guaranteed money deals, the hit isn't as bad, and the team has more flexibility if they want to move on from that player down the road. The third reason is this. It used to be that teams held on to their players because they valued development so much and they believed their players were specific to their system. The idea of that he, this guy's a, a player of our system, was really valuable. But, you know, because systems were regarded as scripture back then, coaches didn't want players being traded to other teams because they also might spill their secrets. That was a big deal, too. I, I can't let a guy go. I can't trade a guy to somebody else. They're going to tell him everything that we know. And that was in the closed circle of culture, coaches, an absolute no-no. But now systems are far more ubiquitous and the coaching trees have gotten really large. Kyle Shanahan, for example, has helped launch the head coaching careers of Robert Sala, Mike McDaniel, Matt, Fale Matt LaFleur, D'Amico Ryans, and they all know each other's stuff. There are really 
few true secrets. Andy Reid's another example. He's launched Sean McDermott, John Harbaugh, Matt Nagy, Doug Peterson, Ron Rivera, Todd Bowles. There's even there's even more coming from the Reid tree. You know, Belichick, of course, is another. You know, most of the coaches in the league have come from a handful of influences, and the systems they employ are all intertwined. And this makes trading players easier since they can be useful to a bunch of different teams. And because honestly, there are few true secrets left in the NFL. And so lastly, the fourth reason is this pressure to win now in the NFL is as great as it's ever been. Teams like the Steelers, the Ravens, the Patriots, and those who value stability at the head coaching and front office positions, they're the exception, not the rule. The norm is that you get a small window of opportunity and you'd better capitalize on it. And that means you need to go for it. And if that involves a big trade, so be it. Take the Jets. They're a great example. They thought they would build for the future by drafting Zach Wilson second overall in 2021. But then they saw what Wilson was all about and they realized he wasn't nearly as far along as they thought he might be. And with a talented roster around him and a really competitive AFC, they decided they couldn't wait. So GM Joe Douglas and head coach Robert Sala knew that their window was now, and to compete, they had to go for it. So enter Rodgers, and now the Jets have a shot. But that shot comes with a shelf life, and you can bet that a few years from now, if the Rodgers experiment doesn't go well, and New York has to turn the page on him and perhaps rebuild with somebody else, that Sala will be gone, and they'll try again with a new leadership group. So when you put it all together, We're living in a much more active NFL landscape when it comes to trades and in a time when teams can dramatically improve their franchise by making the right deal. And so they're going for it. Okay, so that's our prelude. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to look at one such deal that's taken place recently. And that's the trade that sent Pro Bowl linebackers Darius Smith from the Minnesota Vikings to the Cleveland Browns. And we're going to talk about that with one of the great contributors here on FFSN, Dave Stefano from the Vikings First and Skull Network. So you don't want to miss that. Dave's a really great guy and a great guest. So come on back after the break. Hey, welcome back to the call sheet. This is Kevin Smith. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at KTSmithFFSN if you are so inclined, if you're a Twitter person. Just a quick Twitter note, I've been running some pretty regular features lately where I'm breaking down some of the more interesting play designs from teams, both offensively and defensively, and sort of a play of the day type thing and getting into the schematics of all that. So if you're an X and O person, that might be something that you want to check out. In the first half of the show, We were talking about trades and specifically what's spurred the change of philosophy in the NFL that has made trades much more common. And in in this half of the show, we're going to look at one of the recent ones, the Zadarius Smith deal that sent the all-pro linebacker from the Vikings to the Cleveland Browns. And we're going to do it with one of the more interesting personalities around FFSN and one of our greatest contributors, Mr. Dave Stefano. Dave, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, uh, uh, I was reading through, Dave sent me a, a little bit of a bio of him uh, at, before the show, and I was reading through it, and it's it's fascinating. Pretty pretty diverse and interesting life, Dave. Football player, football coach, uh, 25 years of active duty in the services, and um, some, some uh, artistic background as well. You, you're doing all the graphic design for FFSN, and the stuff you're doing is fantastic, and now you're you're kind of in the podcast business. You guys started the first in skull platform over there. How's everything going with that? We're growing. Uh, we had to start from scratch. I've been doing podcasting a lot longer than just two or than FFSN, but we started first in skull from scratch and we're building up. We're steadily getting our viewership up on YouTube and our audio listenership, which is the main part, our podcast, I call it my beer money. It's coming up bit by bit. And we encourage you, if you like the Minnesota Vikings, to listen, look on your favorite aggregator and look for Vikings First and Skull. We bring you a good take, an honest take, and we have fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I've enjoyed listening to, to some of the stuff that you do and Tyler Forness, and you guys are doing some really good stuff over there. So, Dave, before the break, I was talking about some of the early trades. Uh, and by early, I mean thing, trades that took place back when I was younger, the 1980s, 1990s. And I, I mentioned the Herschel Walker trade, and, and I told you that I wasn't going to try to harp on a sore subject, but you, <laughs> but you had an interesting take on that when we were talking before the show. So, so give me your, your reaction to that trade and how you think it all went down. Well, the trade at the time seemed like a great idea. The Vikings, all they needed, they were one piece away from making the Super Bowl finally. And it was a star running back. And who was not the biggest star running back in the league but Herschel Walker? So the leader of the conglomeration of the ownership that we had back in that those years was Mike Land. And Mike Land decides he's going to make this big blockbuster trade and he's going to trade with Dallas Cowboys and it's going to involve getting Herschel and then sending a bunch of Vikings players down there and some pick swaps stuff. Just, But it was an enormous trade at the time. Well, he was very poor at writing up that trade contract and it said that for Dallas to send us compensation for the players that we sent them, they would have to be on the team. So what did Jimmy Johnson do? He cut every last one of them before the season and said, now you owe us all those draft picks. So the Vikings had to pay all those draft picks, and those draft picks resulted in uh, Troy Aikman and the rest of the triplets. And the Cowboys went on their second biggest winning streak, winning Super Bowls under Jimmy Johnson and then later Barry Switzer. And it was all because the Minnesota Vikings didn't know how to write a contract and gave them all those picks. It is a thorn in the side of Vikings fans and has been for decades. Yeah. Beware of doing deals with snake oil salesmen for sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So, so speaking of deals, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the Zadarius Smith trade. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Was the trade 
kind of all about the money. I mean, there were, there were stories uh, that, that Smith wanted a new contract or, or wanted an extension. The Vikings didn't want to give him the money. Uh, and, and do you think they got fair value in return? What's your take on, on the Smith trade? All right. Smith was under contract. He had a good contract. He was scheduled to make over $13.5 million this year. Last year, on the first year of that contract, we had paid him only about $3.5 million. It was a deal. It was a steal. But he was basically a mercenary. It's the best word for it. He hated Green Bay. We play Green Bay. He wanted a chance to beat Green Bay twice. And in the first game and in the second game, we beat Green Bay. First game was the one he he was the one that messed up Aaron Rodgers' thumb at the beginning of the season. Uh, things happen when Aaron Rodgers plays the Vikings, whether it be running into the bar or Zedarius. But he wanted – he came in, in his mind, he wanted to renegotiate – and get paid for this season as a top 20 edge rusher. He felt he deserved it. And the Vikings said, sorry, we don't have the money. We can't do that. And so he sold his house. He sent out a Twitter uh, tweet to all the fans saying, thank you. It's been great. Wonderful. Love it. Blah, blah, blah. And the Vikings went, whoa, whoa, whoa. We still have you under contract. Right? And visions of sugar plums danced in my head of, three-headed monster of Marcus Davenport, Daniil Hunter, and Zadarius Smith on the same line under new defensive coordinator Brian Flores. Well, that didn't happen. Zadarius wasn't going to take it. So they eventually arranged so that he could move on. And there was three suitors total that wanted his services. The Vikings allowed him to choose. He chose the Browns. The Vikings ended up covering some of his guaranteed money. I think it was a total of $3.1 million or something like that. And he signed with the Browns, and they reworked some stuff because they only had $7.1 million in cap space, so they needed to get under that. They basically, he signed there with a one-year deal, but he, they stretched out some money into a void year. And then we needed money because we're in a bad cap situation. We have been for a while. And a lesson to all young GMs, you do not want to get yourself into a bad cap situation. So we're paying for that. We cleared that up. We now have about $12 million in space. We're going to need to clear more because we have some key extensions coming up. Justin Jefferson being one of them. TJ Hawkinson, our tight end, being one of them. We have to make Daniil Hunter happy because he's not going to pay play for $5 million this year even though that's what his contract calls for. So those three are coming up, and then the following year we'll have Christian Derrissaw, our left tackle. So yeah. the Vikings are trying to get right on the money side. Sure. And is that is the, what you just talked about, are, are those the reasons as to why you're hearing some rumors that they may move on from Dalvin Cook as well? They're not rumors. Today the Vikings replaced Dalvin Cook on their Twitter banner with Alexander Madison. It's practically a done deal. There was very close inside sources that said there was going to be a deal on draft day, particularly with the Dolphins. That didn't quite get done, and the Dolphins selected a running back in the draft. So it's it's going to be interesting. Dalvin's due to make over $14 million. And like I said, the Vikings are in a bad space when it comes to the cap. 
They've got some big extensions due, and they need to get healthy. And that's part of when Kwesi Adolfo Mensa took over as GM. He's trying to clean up the mess that Rick Spielman and crew got the team into. And it all started at one spot. And we won't go into that unless you want to. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, again, take you into, into any of the ugliness. We're going to dwell on the positive. So you mentioned the draft class. Uh, what do you think about the draft class? I mean, Minnesota didn't have a lot of picks, but did you like what they did with the ones they had? For the most part, yes. We took Jordan Addison in the first round. Uh, I worry about his size a little bit. He's a, he's a smaller wide receiver. He's, I think, right around six feet, but he only weighs like a buck seventy-five. But he's slippery. Oh man, is he slippery? And he's smooth, and he's literally a route technician. And he's come to the perfect place for it. Uh, we have Keenan McCardell as our wide receivers coach. He does extremely well teaching receivers how to get open and how to properly run routes. Prime example, we have Justin Jefferson, the best wide receiver in the NFL. Now, what's going to be good for Addison is Addison's probably going to start from day one. K.J. Osborne, our wide receiver number three, may have a, a little beef on that, but most likely Addison will be starting day one as wide receiver two opposite of J.J. Well, what happens when you play opposite of J.J.? J.J. gets doubled and triple teamed, and all you've got to do is beat one person. And I expect Kirk Cousins to hit him early and often. And I like that pick. Now, we were weak when it came to defensive backs, corners. We have a very, very young room. Other than uh, Brian Murphy, who we brought over from the Cardinals, everybody's first or second year guys. It's it's real young. Could our, the guys that drafted last year, Andrew Booth or uh, – Caleb Evans get that starting job as opposite Murphy. Oh, absolutely. But we needed some more. Joey Porter was there in the first round. We, we were really, really serious about taking him, but they, they wagered. It would be easier to get the good wide receiver in the first round. And then a good cornerback later, which they did pick up then doing it vice versa, picking the corner and then going for the wide receiver later. And I think that was the smart move on this draft class. Yeah, it was it was a pretty deep class for corners. The Steelers waited uh, to take uh, Porter with that first pick of the second round. They gambled he'd still be there, and they, and they won that gamble. Addison's a guy who's got some Pittsburgh connection with playing with Kenny Pickett for a while there in college. Mm -hmm. and the one thing I love about Addison is his – a relationship I think with Kirk Cousins is a really good marriage because for a guy like that who's quick uh and and who's going to be really difficult to cover in the slot you want to you want a quarterback who gets the ball out of his hand fast and a, and a real decisive quarterback a guy who makes decisions quickly I can see the Vikings running a ton of option routes where they're really just giving Addison the ability to attack the leverage of the alley player and break opposite and Cousins will read that stuff and with Jefferson being the downfield threat. If you get Addison running those crossing routes with some space, he's going to be a problem to tackle. So I like him more than a lot of people do. A lot of people feel as though he's he's a bit overhyped because of this big splash plays that he need, he made, but he, but not as consistent. But I really like the, the combination that you have there with Jefferson 
Cousins and now Addison. Nice compliment for those other guys. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And Kirk Cousins does make those decisions quickly. Throws a great ball. He's highly accurate. That has never been Kirk Cousins' problems. Uh, he and we love to run crossers, and I think that's where they're going to kill him. But we love to give Kevin O'Connell and even Mike Zimmer's offense before that. They love to give the wide receiver the option to read the defender. And if the defender, you know, closes his hips or swivels his hips this way or that, they can cut the opposite direction. Kirk Cousins knows how to read that from a quarterback perspective. Wide receivers know how to read that. And that generally means open space for the wide receivers and good things for the Vikings. Sure. So you put Addison in an offense that already has Jefferson and Hawkinson. Uh, obviously, the, the Vikings are known for being pretty physical up front on both sides of the ball. They're coming off a year where they went 13-4. and four. But all the talk in the AFC, NFC North, I should say, has really been about Chicago and Detroit. They, they seem to be the darlings of the division. And then you throw in the intrigue in Green Bay with Rodgers leaving and, and sort of a, a changing of the guard there. It feels like people are sleeping on the Vikings. It, it's hard, it seems hard to sleep on a team that went 13-4, and four, but I'm just not hearing much about them. What do you think about the rest of the division? And do you think the Vikings are still the class of the NFC North? All right. First off, we all celebrated that Aaron Rodgers has left the division. <laughs> and rightfully so. It's about time. Yeah. The Vikings having 30 years of Hall of Fame and future Hall of Fame quarterbacks just doesn't seem fair. But as for the division, I think the division is for the Vikings to lose. I know Detroit is favored a game over the Vikings right now. I don't see it. Yes, Detroit's getting better. Detroit's a great story. Detroit, the young kneecap biters, they're doing great. They're getting better. They improve their defense, love the attitude, but they haven't won an NFC North title ever. Last time they won a division title, we were the NFC Central, and we were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in their creamsicle uniforms. That's how long ago that was. So everybody sort of feels sorry for Detroit in our division. They're this, the cute little kid, you know, hey, nice try, nice try. And Detroit <laughs> has always done what we call Detroit being Detroit, doing Detroit things, and they always tend to implode at some point in time. Well, they started early this season on that implosion. They had, I think it was four players and a, and a coach or two or something like that get Busted for off-field gambling, sports gambling. Uh, two of the players are suspended for the entire season and two other for six weeks, including their number one wide receiver. That's going to put them in sort of in a funky mood. A team dealing with things like that, it, it sort of offsets them. And I hope, I expect that to give us the advantage because they are that way. It's, it's going to be interesting to find out. We play a couple tough divisions this – well, we play one tough division this year besides our own, and then we play the NFC South, which isn't so tough. But they, they're going to be right up there, and I think the NFL saw that. They have us scheduled to play in Week 16. Detroit will be at U.S. Bank, and then Week 17, Green Bay comes to U.S. Bank, and then we go on the road for Week 18 – 
with Detroit again. We don't see Detroit till the very end of the season. So I think they anticipate it's going to be a battle between Minnesota and Detroit. Now, when it comes down to Chicago, Chicago's in a full-blown rebuild. They started last year. They continued this year. They're drafting guys, especially going heavy on the offense and defensive line, which I think is a great way to build a football team. It, they're not there yet. And then they have a question at quarterback, Justin Fields. Justin Fields is an outstanding running quarterback. His problem is throwing the football. It's not as outstanding as his running skills. And if you can shut down the Bears' running attack and make him throw, you can easily beat the Bears. But they are improving, but I expect them to finish third in the division behind the Vikings and the Lions. Then comes the Bears. And then in Green Bay, I'm hoping for pre-Farve era Green Bay where they're playing half their games in Milwaukee because they are so bad. Jordan Love is a huge question mark. He's only thrown 80-some-odd passes uh, in his pro career. They had to give him a fifth-year option just so he could play. He's, he's a wild card. He has looked good in one game, but most of them he looks horrible. Green Bay drafted two tight ends. They, they're okay. They're, they're not pushovers. It's, it, they're not the worst team in the league, but it's, I see them finishing last in the division. Hmm. So it's interesting when, I, when you were talking about Detroit as a, a Steelers fan, I'm thinking about the Cleveland Browns who for years and years were, uh, you, <laughs> I think you called them the kneecap biters, which yeah. is a great phrase, but the Browns, uh, yeah, they just never could get there. And there would always be some rebuild and some hope and optimism. And then they would inevitably shoot themselves in the foot, as you said. And uh, and they get it right every once in a while. They 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 had a, a decent run a couple of years ago with, with Baker Mayfield. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, hey, the Browns are the class of the division. And then all of a sudden, not so much. And it just feels like certain teams just can't get out of their own way. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know the answer to this, but I, uh, the question of how many teams have never made the Super Bowl, but the Browns and I think there's the Lions five. are two of them. I think there's five. Yeah. Probably around, probably in that neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Jacksonville. I couldn't, I can't name the other two off the top of my head, but, but uh, it, there are some similarities. The, the, the crossover between the AFC North and the NFC North, are interesting. I've always looked at the Vikings as a team that shares some similarities with the Steelers. They they're physical football teams. They have rabid fan bases. They they had you know when we when you and I probably became fans of them, they had great nicknames: the Purple People Eaters and the Steel Curtain. They had great they had running great backs. wide receivers. Great running wide backs. receivers, right? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I I, you know, I remember as a little kid the Chuck Foreman and Franco Harris uh, parallels, etc. And they play in the Lynch cold Swan weather and. Stallworth, I tried yeah. to catch the football like him when I was playing ball as a kid. Right, right. Yeah, it was it was great to emulate them, and you even even think uh, into the nineties. They had they the the Steelers and the Vikings. I don't want to say they experimented with, but in Cordell Stewart and Randall Cunningham, they had two quarterbacks who were probably ahead of their time in terms of the blend of athleticism and. Uh, 
uh, pocket passing that we see in the NFL now. The read option game was not a thing in the 1990s, but I've always thought, man, imagine if Cordell Stewart and Randall Cunningham were being trained today and were playing in the NFL today. How good would those guys be? Uh, that is, uh, absolutely. It, it would be fun. But like you said, the game changes. It changes over time. We go from the wing tee, eventually make the you know the wishbone, and then the pro eye, and it, and it changes and changes and changes. It's cyclic. We'll get back to some of these same old stuff in 20 years or so. But it's, yes, those guys were ahead of their time. They could have excelled in today's NFL. Yeah. And I love the fact that the NFL is going back towards that more mobile style of quarterback. Does a drop back uh, passer type that's an absolute, you know, Picasso in the backfield can just lay the perfect mark down with the perfect pass? Is that valuable? Absolutely. You know, but they're hard to find. And But if you can combine that with somebody that can run and is a threat, you've got a winner. Just ask the Chiefs. Right. It's funny. You, you talked about old schemes becoming new. When you look at – you go back to the 70s and the trendy scheme was the wishbone and all these teams were running the wishbone and the option. And they're putting three backs in the backfield with the quarterback, so you got four guys back there. And now everybody talks about the spread offense. Well, let's let's do the opposite. Let's spread everybody out rather than pack the box. But they're still doing the same exact thing. In the wishbone, you're running triple option. You're reading the unblocked defensive end. Well, in the spread, you're running the zone read. And who are you reading? The unblocked defensive end. You're just doing it from new formations uh, and adding some things on the perimeter to, to make it a little harder to defend. So it's interesting how everything just kind of comes back around, but in a slightly different form. Yep. Hey, that's, so, hey listen. that's why we love it. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it always makes football so interesting because there's just constant ways of finding new ways to play the game, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a never ending chess match. It's brilliant. So Dave, I'm going to get you out of here on, on, uh, on one more question here. So, so when you think about the upcoming season for Minnesota and you sound as though you're fairly helpful uh, or hopeful, I should say, uh, about their prospects, if, if you were the GM and you could make one move, one move that you think would most help the team heading into 2023, what would that move be? If money wasn't an issue, I'd trade for Quinn and Williams from the Jets. But I'm an <laughs> money wasn't an issue. I'd have a million-dollar house on the beach. So, <laughs> uh, But money's an issue. That, that's why we're getting rid of Dalvin Cook. Okay. Um, are going to be. It's – I can't I, – I wish I had – I'd probably add another more experienced corner back down there in, in the room to help mentor. Uh, you guys picked up Patrick Peterson on the Steelers. And as I told you, told the Steel Curtain show that uh, if I'd have one person back, not named Watts, it would be Patrick Peterson because he is so great with mentoring young DBs and teaching them. That that's that's where we're our our defense is our weakest point. We're looking probably seven new starters on the defense. But I think with Brian Flores, spirits are bright over there. Our offense should be top five. I'm not worried on that side of the ball. Well, I'll tell you, Flores spent the past year in Pittsburgh, and some of the Steelers linebackers said that it was like having a cheat code out there because of the way that he sees things and and his ability uh, to teach schemes. So I'm sure he's going to make a huge impact in Minnesota. 
So Dave, man, I really appreciate you coming on. Very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, anything you got going over uh, on over there at First and Skull you want to talk about real quick? Well, uh, we're starting a new series daily. It's called the Vikings Daily Opener. We uh, tie it in with what was this last weekend, the walleye opener in Minnesota. We're just going over the news of the day. It usually hits first thing in the morning. I did not get out yesterday's because I've been swamped, but we've done six days in a row. We're going on a seventh. We also have Tyler Fornis, who you mentioned before, the Real Forno Show. He will be on live tomorrow night. He did his first attempt at the final 53-man roster. And there's some surprising cuts he made. He and I are going to disagree on that. And then, of course, over on the weekend, you get two old bloggers with myself and Darren as we take our experience of blogging and reporting on the Minnesota Vikings for over two decades apiece. And we do our thing and we talk Vikings. It's a wonderful community, both on the podcast side and on the visual side. And we are happier and all get out to be part of uh, fans first sports network. And I think we're growing. The network itself is it meets everybody's sports needs. If it doesn't let us know, we'll add that sport too. Yes, sir. And it lets it, you know, that's people like me connect with people like you. And we get an opportunity mm-hmm. to talk to people all around the country uh, about the great game of football. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of it. So thank you to Dave and thanks to all listeners for another episode of The Call Sheet. We'll be back again next week with a focus on what's going on contemporarily in football and starting to to lean a little more heavily into the X and O's as we get closer to the summer and the training camp season. So have a great week, everybody. God bless. Oh, how it rips me, but love makes me live for tomorrow.